old-timey crimey. I'm Christy. And I'm Amber. And we are here this week with some true crime historical, probably not goodness, probably badness. I have an Easter story for you. Oh, okay. So goodness? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's what I thought. Yeah. Don't forget to check out the Patreon where we are digging into a potential serial killer in Aurora, Illinois in the 1910s and having quite an interesting time of it. Today we had a tale of two trials. Tale of two trials. <laughs> it's been it's a fun not fun ride, but it's it's a compelling ride cuz I can't stop researching this. She's obsessed. <laughs> I am obsessed, yes. So, yeah, you'll hear more about that later in the episode. But in the meantime, actually, for a little change of pace, because I had my birthday last week. Happy birthday, Christy. Thank you. And so Amber gave me a little break. So she's going to take the wheel, much like Jesus, and tell me a story. That is the first time anyone's compared me to Jesus. And will probably be the last. Yes, I'm certain. <laughs> so, speaking of Jesus, I'm going to tell you about Bobby Irwin. He was born Fenelon Arroya Seco Irwin. Wow. To some holy roller parents uh, during a tent revival in Portland, Oregon. Okay. He was born during a tent revival. Apparently so. Some of his earliest memories were being dragged to these crazy tent church meetings. And people would like speak in tongues and cure ailments with their hysterical prayer so a, a cult, it's, it's a fucking cult. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's what it sounds like. Okay, so uh, we can actually stop right there because you know he's mentally fucked right out of the gate. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was a great show. <laughs> and uh, don't forget to check out our social media. Yeah, yeah. See you next week. So his father abandoned the family when Fenelon was three, leaving them broke and struggling. Fenelon had two other brothers and a little sister, but the little sister died at age two from whooping cough. Ugh. The family lived in a shack with flour sacking neatly stretched over the unplastered walls. Ooh, boy. That's, that's a rough go. Yeah, so three brothers, a little sister that didn't make it, and they live in a shack. With flour. Flour sacking sacks. is like the walls. I actually, flower sacking was so multi-purpose in its uses. I read about how at one point in time when flower manufacturers learned that people were using flower sacks to make clothing, like dresses for, for kids, they started making the sacks in different flower prints and different Aww. other you know, patterns and stuff that people could use to make their clothing. That's actually really neat. It's actually probably one of the more wholesome things we've ever said on this show. Yeah, maybe the most. <laughs> Possibly. But it's Easter after all. So to support the family, Mrs. Irwin would work whatever job she could find. Cleaner, sweatshop seamstress. Oh. She rarely earned more than $3 a day. Their meals were often buttermilk and stale bread that they got from begging at nearby bakeries. Oh, that is a rough existence. They had no toys, but Fenelon would play with soap. And that's actually where he found his love of art, specifically sculpting. Oh, okay. So he would sculpt the bars of soap. Now, Mrs. Irwin, aside from crazy church cult, thing that she had going on, she would read whatever child-rearing advice that she could get her hands on, because it's just her and her three boys. And she read that children should learn about sex from their parents and not think of it as a mystery. So she made sure to bathe in front of them often. Okay, I think she took the wrong message from that. Yeah, well, she, she didn't want them to think that sex was only smutty and being very religious. She, she wanted to just be like, do you have any questions? Um, so when she wasn't wagging her boobies around, she was making the boys read three chapters of the Bible every single day and learn a psalm by heart by Sunday of every week. Yeah. Yeah. So this actually made Fenelon a huge fan of Robert Ingersoll, who was a free thinker. 
And his mother thought of Robert Ingersoll as one of the devil's allies. Uh Uh-oh. So Fenelon changed his name to Robert or Bobby to honor his personal free-thinking hero. I bet Mama didn't uh, like that move. Uh, Probably not. Probably not. But she had her hands full because his brothers were already delinquents and kind of constantly getting arrested, sent to reform schools, and then after they graduated, penitentiaries. Oh, no. So Bobby managed to stay out of trouble. So he was the good one of the three brothers. But at 18, he did not have a job, and he felt himself a burden to his mother. So he had himself committed to a juvenile home. What? That, that's an interesting route. Not, not the first one that would pop to my head. Well, his, his brothers had gotten sent to reform school or jail. And so he's like, well, I'll just commit myself to a juvenile home. And that way I won't burden my mother anymore. I don't think I even knew you could commit yourself to one. I thought you had to be put in one by, you know, a judge or somebody. Yeah. Different time, I guess. So he he gets himself committed for a little while. He made friends with a worker there. And that worker encouraged him to pursue his art and would even buy him clay to continue sculpting. Oh, wow. So Bobby stayed there for about 15 months before he started wandering around. He briefly worked in Hollywood at an art studio. He studied with a sculptor in Chicago. And then he went on to New York City in 1930. So he's now 23 years old in 1930. And he got a job as a clerk in an art store. Seems very fitting. Art seems to be the thing that really drives him. Yeah, sure. And while he was there, he was, the, he was also an assistant to a master sculptor to learn more of his craft, and even got a job as a taxidermy helper. I suppose there's some art in that? There's definitely some art in it, although that is the much more gruesome side of art. Mm-hmm. But sure, he's working. He's in New York City. He's working. He's trying to pursue his dreams. It seems like he's on the right track. Especially considering that upbringing. Yeah, right? Because, oh my. (laughs) Whew. So in 1931, Bobby started having some problems. He started getting these fantasies that were getting more and more violent. And it scared him. So he committed himself to a psych hospital. So he recognized that these were not normal thoughts. Unlike me, who just thinks they're normal, he was like, this is bad. I'm going to go to the psych ward. So he told the doctor that he was afraid that he was going to end up killing somebody the way that he was fantasizing about this. He stayed at the Kings County Hospital in Brooklyn for about three weeks, and then he went to the Burke Foundation in White Plains. He remained as a patient... Quote, for the period allotted by the providers of charity for the convalescence of poor people. Hmm. Basically, as long as they would let a poor person stay, he stayed. And then he got a job as a waiter there so he could continue to stay there. Oh, okay. So he recognized he had a problem. He tried to fix it. They tried to kick him out. And he's like, well, I'll, I'll work here as a waiter and that way I can stay right here. In this environment where I feel like... Safe. Yeah, exactly. He's trying to do the right thing, at least. He did go back to Manhattan in the spring of 1932, but it's now getting the depression, and art is not heavily valued because food is. Yeah. So he would sleep on benches and beg for food. He did eventually find work as a dishwasher at a restaurant on the city's east side. So dishwasher at a restaurant, you can get some scraps there. And since he was making a little bit of money, he was able to rent a room nearby. He found a room at the Gideon home in Beekman Hill. Now, the Gideon family had four family members that lived there. Joseph a Hungarian immigrant, and he ran an upholstery shop. His wife, Mary, their older daughter, Ethel, a, quote, placid brunette with impeccable morals, (laughs) and Ethel's younger sister, Veronica, who was a party girl. 
Veronica was uh, apparently very stunning. She was 18. She already had one impulsive marriage behind her by age 18. Wow. Hey, that, you know, better get on that before you become a spinster, I guess. She worked as an artist's model. She would pose nude and would pose nude for an amateur camera club. If I saw that on Craigslist today, I would have some questions. I imagine the ad would have, like, titty sprinkles somewhere (laughs) in there. Oh, no, you've got to hide that with euphemisms. But, yeah, no, today on Craigslist, no no euphemisms. No, there's no euphemisms here because she also modeled for a, like, pulp detective magazine. And so, like, they would write these stories about, like, murders and stuff like that, and she would be the cover art. Huh. One of the stories that I love very much was I was a teenaged white slave where she's topless in the picture. Sure, why not? Yeah, she she had a successful modeling career going on. So we've got an aspiring artist here and an artist model. Interesting. It is very interesting. <laughs> but not the way you think. Okay, all right. I'm ready. I'm here for it. So Bobby lived there for a few days, and then in an apparent effort to save his sexual energy for later. For later. So he wanted to save his sexual energy for later. He tried to cut off his own penis. Oh, oh, oh. No, I didn't, but that, that doesn't say, no, that doesn't save it. Oh. Go down! <laughs> Is he going to taxidermy it? I don't know. I, I don't know. I'll just save this for later and then stuff it and bang it on my wall. He was With very, some antlers, maybe. He was very <laughs> upset about his sexual energy, and so he tried to cut it off. Oh, my. Yeah, so back to the psych ward for Bobby. Yeah, one would hope. This time he went to Bellevue. And he would try to convince anybody that would listen at Bellevue to amputate his penis. Wow. He would beg the surgical interns to do it. And they're just like, wow, no. (laughs) And also, we're interns. We're not actually allowed to do any of that. So Bobby stayed there for five months. And he left as, quote, improved but not recovered. Mm. His doctor did convince him to commit himself at Rockland State Hospital, where Bobby did stay until 1934. So this doctor, Dr. Wordham, would actually go on to write a paper about this whole incident for a John Hopkins conference. He would predict that this type of violence against oneself is certain to come back again. So either another violent act against yourself or possibly somebody else. Now, after all this, Bobby stayed at Rockland State Hospital till 1934, and then he went back to New York and went back in with the Gideons. And so hold up. I am so confused by this. <laughs> I am too. I don't get it. It seems like the impetus for his... <laughs> <laughs> Attempted unpenising was... That happened in the Gideon house, in their bathroom, after he'd lived there for a few days. So probably one of the sisters, most likely Veronica, not not saying it's her fault that he did this or anything, but that his sexual thoughts were of her and he was trying to rid himself of them. We don't know what his thoughts were of, but still, he. so uh, just imagine this. So somebody comes to stay with you for a couple days. Yeah, just the house guest, just, you know. And then they try to cut off their dick in your bathroom. Yeah, no, no. And then they come back a year later and they're like, it's cool if I stay. Why the fuck would you say yes? No, I don't get it. I don't get it at all. Okay, but they did. It's the depression. Maybe they needed the money to rent the room. Sure. But still. I would be on pins and needles. There's no phrasing that works for anything here. Once, once you introduce attempted self-castration, there's no phrasing that isn't dangerous. It gets so much worse. Oh, God. So he moves back in, and now he is fixated on one of the daughters, but not the one you're thinking. So not Veronica. No, he loves 
Ethel, Miss Good Girl. Impeccable morals, Ethel. He actually described Veronica as being pretty, but like empty. And she's just like a blonde hair, blue eye, everybody else. And there's nothing there. Mm. But Ethel, Ethel was a good girl. And maybe not everybody saw her as beautiful as he saw her, but she was perfection. So he is fixated on the good girl. And at first, she was friendly to him, and she would listen to him talk about art. He would invite her to go to art museums with him, and she would she would go with him to see the art museums. And I mean, like, I can understand that, because I'm a nerd, and if you invite me to a museum, I'm a go. Same. Yeah. I want to go. Yeah, sure. If you're paying admission, I'm in, homie. <laughs> Let's go to museums. But then after a while, she's like, ah, I don't know, maybe this guy's a little weird. And then she kind of just like, still very polite, but was like putting the distance there. I mean, I would hope that the fact that he tried to castrate himself a year prior might have raised a red flag or two. Yeah, and we're not really sure how that relationship progressed. To me, it seems like from Ethel's point of view, she was just being friendly towards one of the boarders. Mm -hmm. And then when she picked up that he might want more... She put the brakes on and was like, I am not that girl. I, I am also, not that girl. I wonder if they even knew the sisters. Because them being, you know, delicate women. Yeah, I mean, they were probably like 18 and 20. They might not have even been home when it happened. It, nobody really says if they were home or if any of them were aware of it. Yeah, yeah. And so even whatever the parents knew, if they knew anything, they would have kept from the sisters. I put money on it. Yeah, that is not the type of parent I am. I would be telling everybody. I just don't see that as a as a 1930s dinner table conversation, you know. So uh, that's fair. <laughs> so Veronica, the strangest thing happened with our border today. He tried to cut off his tallywhacker. <laughs> Ronnie, Ronnie, you love cock, right? <laughs> Let me tell you a story. We almost had a spare one lying around for you. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So, uh, anyway, back to the story. (laughs) (laughs) Broken. I'm just thinking about just throwing it at her. Oh, fuck me. All right. So Bobby goes back to his doctor, and the doctor notes that he is getting more and more unstable. He's getting worse. And in January of 1935, Bobby gets recommitted to Rockland at the doctor's urging. And he was not in a, a good place when he was there. So, like, at one point, he's sculpting a bust, and he, he's just doing his, his art thing. And a young doctor was walking by and like, wow, that's really amazing. Like, you're really, really good. So Bobby attacked the doctor. Oh, well, that's what we do when we get compliments, yes. Yeah, I mean, like, I want to punch people in the face when they compliment me too, I guess. So he just did it. Bobby was was still discharged in September of 1936 as improved again. So basically he starts to get really bad and then he gets put in the asylum for a while until he shows improvement and then he gets put back into society. Probably far too early. Yes, but he's poor. Yes, exactly. And, and so that's where we're at with that. So he did apply to St. Lawrence Theological School, and he went there for six months and worked some odd jobs. He taught two sculpture classes, oh. one for adults and one for kids. Okay. So he was doing okay, but then by spring of 37, he got expelled from school for some of his erratic behavior. Okay, I'm a little concerned now. I should have been in retrospect already, but concerned about the fact that he was teaching children. Probably. Probably. But they don't go on to describe what this erratic behavior was, but it was enough to get him kicked out of school. Oh, you said erratic. (gasps) I thought you said erotic. Er Erratic. (laughs) Who's the pervert now? I am almost positive, and I will hear it in the edit, that You said erotic behavior. I'm I'm still just thinking of throwing his cock at Ronnie. (laughs) I'm broken. I'm sorry. Oh, Erratic behavior, and I apologize. (laughs) I can't believe that's what I heard. 
I cannot wait to edit this. One of us <laughs> broke the other one, and I'm not sure which way uh, it went. I think it's mutual. <laughs> it very well could be. It's a team effort. <laughs> team effort. So Bobby gets kicked out of school, and he hops a bus back to good old New York City. Is he going back to the Gideons? He went back to the Gideons. Oh. Yes. So he shows up at the Gideon Flats on Good Friday. Told you it was going to be an Easter story. Here we go. Buckling in. But he got sent away because they had already rented the extra room and there was no room for him. So the extra room was taken by an Englishman by the name of Frank Burns, who worked as a bartender at a tennis club. Bobby went on to find another room nearby, just a couple blocks away, and he paid the landlady a dollar for the night. Oh, yeah. If, uh, if you, that makes it onto the uh, the recording, I have a, a cat who is recovering from surgery and must be a lap cat at all times. And now he's a snorry lap cat once again. So uh, if you heard a little cat snore just now, that's what that was. It was Hemingway being all happy and sleepy. <laughs> so back at the Gideon flat, though, I have a story. Okay. So Mary and John had been arguing a lot about their youngest daughter's behavior. John is not happy about any of this. I can see most 1930s fathers wouldn't be, even some 2020s fathers and mothers wouldn't be super thrilled. She's like kind of, I don't know if I'd say it's the equivalent of OnlyFans, but I mean, I guess any sort of... It's kind of the OnlyFans of the day, but it wasn't just that. So... She, uh, a newspaper of the day actually posted her diary entries. Oh. And she was seeing a lot of boys. She was staying out late every night, getting hammered. She would write about going on dates and getting drunk. Like, she was trying to live her best life. (laughs) (laughs) And then getting paid for taking off her top. Which, hey, more power to her. Yeah, and she was described as a woman that made a fool of many men. I just, I have to admire her for for doing whatever the hell she wants, because it is so against the social mores of that day. And she's like, no, forget that. I'm just going to do my thing. Yeah, she was a fox, too. There's a ton of pictures of her. So anyway... John got so upset about his daughter's behavior, and Mary seemed to kind of support support her daughter, at least. I don't know if it, how she felt about the whole thing, but she was like, no, it's my daughter. I love her. I'm not kicking her out. So John moved out. Oh, okay. So the father of, of the girls moved out and moved into a cubbyhole in his upholstery business. Oh, a cubbyhole. A cubbyhole that was apparently covered in... The nudie girls from Pulp Magazines. Um, Not his daughter, but he really liked the porn and was probably upset that his daughter might be in some of the magazines that he enjoyed. Oh, so there's more to this than just moralizing. There's also rampant hypocrisy. Yeah, he just doesn't want to see his, his daughter's titties. And I get that. Well, I get that. But at the same time, you're consuming the same media that you're upset that she's making. Like, you're kind of not allowed to be, you're not allowed to denigrate her for the same thing that you enjoy as a consumer. Well, I don't think anyone really knew that he enjoyed it until later because he had this all hidden in his cubbyhole. But he knows that he enjoyed it. But he knows, yes. But anyway, he had moved out and Mary had invited him home for Easter dinner. So I don't know if this was an olive branch or what. And Ethel was going to be coming home for Easter, too. She had gotten married and moved to the suburbs. Oh, good for Ethel. So she found a nice man by the name of Joe Kudner, and they were living happily and quietly in the suburbs. So Easter Day rolls around, because it's an Easter story. Joseph arrived at noon with some flowers for his wife. Oh, And he let himself in. And he discovered his youngest daughter's naked body in her bed. And his wife, Mary, stuffed halfway underneath that bed. Oh, my God. The boarder, Frank Burns, was dead in the next room, having been killed in his sleep by multiple stab wounds to the head. 
So Joseph walks in and he's in shock. He's not moving really. He's not understanding what's going on. He didn't call for help because he's like trying to register what the fuck is happening. Yeah, you would absolutely go into shock finding most of your family murdered and brutally so. So Ethel and her husband actually walked in a couple minutes behind him while he was still standing there in shock. And so now the gang's all here. And uh, Ethel and her husband took care of calling the police and getting them on scene. Medical examiners determined that both women had been strangled. Burns's skull had been punctured 15 times with something sharp and skinny, possibly an ice pick. I find that difference very interesting. The, the strangling, which is a... It's less brutal way of killing. It's certainly less bloody. It preserves the appearance of the person to an extent. But do you remember the conversation we had about how long it actually takes to strangle a person? Certainly, yes. You can fuck in the amount of time <laughs> it takes to strangle somebody. So why not both? <laughs> no, but I'm just saying that those are those are two very different forms of murdering someone, regardless of the amount of time invested no spent um, the amount of time it takes they're very very different in their probably the feelings and the end results and a lot of you know you have a lot of blood versus bloodless but it's also it's it's easier to overpower a woman physically than it is a man true yeah true especially in those days so, reading through the, all the old newspapers that, thank you, Chris Garcia, mm-hmm. um, police originally suspected John Gideon, and they went after him hard. Well, maybe it wasn't an ice pick. Maybe it was some of his heavy-duty upholstery needles. Oh. They initially thought that Mary Gideon had been raped. And who better to do it than her estranged husband? There was no sexual assault on Ronnie. They didn't even suspect it, even though she was naked for whatever reason. And why not kill the daughter that was bringing such shame to your family? And then they went into his cubbyhole and they found all the smutty magazines. Oh, boy. And they're like, here's another reason. Yeah. So we have the, the wife that he was pissed at and had moved out, the daughter he was pissed at, and John didn't have an alibi, and he couldn't remember the clothes he was wearing the night before, and he thought he had a hat at some point, but it got lost. And, um... Okay, so just in fairness, though, honestly, what man can remember what they wore the night before when they went out drinking? Do you guys remember? I mean... And you're out drinking if you lose a hat. Yeah, if you lose a hat, you know, that that's par for the course. But I think a, a decent amount of people can remember because at the very least, you were probably sober when you put it on. He was basically like, I don't know if it was a brown suit or a gray suit. Like, I was wearing a suit and went into the tap room. Um, I don't, It was a suit. I, I don't know what happened to my hat. <laughs> but he also was very, very brutally honest with the police. And let them know that he hated his wife and his daughter, Ronnie. Wow. He brought flowers and came over for Easter dinner, but he hates them? He hates them, apparently. That's what he told the police, or at least that's what the police said, he said. Hmm. Well, and it didn't help either that the family had a dog. Oh. The dog did not bark when the murderer was inside. Oh, that again. Yeah. Yep. Dog never barked. Neighbors never heard the dog bark. So when the police were there, the dog was barking like fucking crazy. So it has to be somebody the dog knows. Yeah, my neighbor's dogs freak out if I so much as sneeze on on my deck, and they have five of them. It's fun. I'm like, I'm so far away from you, and do I have to show you my freaking deed to my house? My mortgage payments? This is my property, dog. Yeah, no, have, my, my neighbor's dog bark at me constantly. Yeah. I'm just used to it now. I have I have said this before to the dogs, actually. <laughs> and I have, I might have flipped them off on occasion when the owners weren't looking. I'm sure they're great dogs, but they just 
spark constantly in there. Did I mention there's five? I'm also just picturing you on, like, their ring doorbell. <laughs> and they're, like, posting it to fucking TikTok. Like, look at this crazy bitch flipping off the dogs. Well, they scared the crap out of me when I went to go spray. Oh, sorry. Um, we have a saying in this household because Jackson is allergic to bees. And so when we find, like, a yellow jacket's nest in the ground, it's a bee hole. You gotta had, spray out the bee hole. I had to spray the bee hole. And the dogs were out, and you do that at, at night. My heart rate spiked like a million because I'm already tense because I'm walking up to a freaking yellow jacket's nest that had my husband in the damn hospital twice in 24 hours. And the dog starts yipping, yipping at me, and I didn't even know it was there. Yeah, no. <laughs> so I, I have reason to resent those dogs. Fair enough. This is actually a good dog, though. This episode is sponsored by Witful. Murder is messy, but your meetings don't have to be. We are both absolute fiends for productivity tools. And with how many meetings and events and tasks we have to do every day, we'd be lost without Witful. That's right. Witful, W-I-T-F-U-L, the calendar-based organizational tool for individuals. It intuitively connects the people, meetings, notes, and tasks that make up your day. Witful is here to help you stay on top of it all with amazing tools like smart tags that attach information to meetings, tasks, and people so that you have the information you need at your fingertips when you need it. And tools like a smarter to-do list that helps keep your priorities straight. Witful helps people with Google calendars full of meetings to stay on top of everything. It's like having a second brain. And it can help you be the amazing leader you want to be. Go to Witful.com, that's W-I-T-F-U-L.com, to find out how Witful can make every day smoother and more organized. Welcome to a new world of work with Witful. Hey there, beloved listeners. If you're enjoying this episode, then you absolutely should check out our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey, which is the absolute best way you can support the show and get something in return. For just $5 a month, you get five bonus episodes a month. On the Patreon, we frequently talk about old-timey crimes you won't hear about anywhere else. Crimes that have been forgotten by time and erased by history that you won't read about on Wikipedia, Murderpedia, or really anypedia. We also delve into the old newspapers, for the wacky wild crimes like the thieving lion tamer and the spaceman intruder. Or talk about strange, delightful customs like nutting day while learning about the time people rioted over cheese. <laughs> so come t- we can't even talk about it in our own promo without giggling. I love nutting day. <laughs> nutting day is the best day. So come check out the Patreon for more of the weirdest wildest and most shocking old-timey crime. That's patreon.com slash old-timey crimey. Where's the link? (laughs) In the show notes. (laughs) I knew I was not going to get through Nutting Day without giggling. And the neighbors were telling the police that they thought that Mary and the new boarder, Frank Burns, might have been brown chicken brown cow. Oh. Hmm. Those are just rumors, though. So they went and got John and dragged him out of bed and interrogated him for 33 hours straight. Jesus Christ. I'm pretty sure that's illegal now. Tabloids were already announcing that they had caught the killer. Mm -hmm. It was completely sensationalized with almost all of the stories having some of Ronnie's nearly naked pics. Yeah, this is this is tabloid catnip. It really is. And I believe it was the Daily News that had a nine-page spread on it. Yeah, that sounds right. Having gotten a lot of previous case information from the Daily News and seen some of their, you know, pictorial spreads and everything. Yep, that that this is Daily News material, all right. It really was, but the police didn't correct them because they had another clue and they had another lead that they were tracking down while all this was going on. So the newspapers are going crazy over there. They didn't know they had found a bar of soap (gasps) expertly carved at the scene of the crime. 
Mm, gee, I wonder who could have done that. So they're letting poor... I forgot the father. John. John. I went like Charles, Joe. I'm like going through it's like common Easter, names. It's Easter. It's John and Mary. Come Sorry, on. Okay, all right, all right, all right, all right. So they're letting poor John take the fall and letting all the attention shine on him just so that they can do their investigation in secret. It just doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem fair, but they also, they actually did have, like, I, I read somewhere that there was, like, a gun charge against him, too. Mm. Like, so he was doing things he shouldn't have been doing, regardless. But while this was going on, they were tracking down this bar of soap. Police asked Ethel about some of the past borders. And were very interested when they, she mentioned Bobby Irwin, the young sculptor. Mm. And they also found several mentions of him in Ronnie's diary. Quote, I think he is out of his head. And I am afraid of B. Who? An eyewitness said that they saw Bobby in the neighborhood right before the crime occurred the evening before Easter. So police traced back the last place he stayed where he had forgotten his diary, too. And yes, I know it's usually journal, but he's a little bitch. So we're going to go with diary. <laughs> That's fine either way. Quote, God, how I adore Ethel. Perfection. That's what she is. Absolute perfection. If only Ronnie and her mother hadn't interfered. It has made a shipwreck out of me. How I hate Ronnie and her mother for what they have done to me. It's a little bit damning. Just a little. Just a little. <laughs> so the headlines began screaming for the mad sculptor. The mad sculptor. <laughs> and Bobby remained at large for three months. Oh my gosh. It wasn't until late June that a 19-year-old named Henrietta saw a story about it in a, in a magazine while she was working at the Cleveland Statler Hotel. It had a picture of the mad sculptor, and it looked just like the bar boy that they had hired a month and a half ago. Oh. So she went up to the bar boy, Bob Murray, and goes, Have you ever heard about Robert Irwin? Bob says, Never heard of him. That night, Bob's locker got cleaned out, and Bob was not in town anymore. Hmm. But the very next day, June 26, 1937, a man calling himself Robert Irwin called the Chicago Herald and Examiner to offer his surrender for a suitable price. They jumped on it. Absolutely jumped on it. So wait, he's trying to get the newspaper to pay him to surrender? Yes. And that the newspaper in Chicago yes. and the crimes happened in New York? Yes. Okay, sure. That worked. So they signed a contract for $5,000, and Bobby gave them an exclusive interview. 24 hours, he was sequestered with the editor of the paper and two reporters. I'm just um, checking what that is today. I knew you would. I have an app. <laughs> 1937. Compute. Ooh, 96000 So $96,000. I didn't even need to. I actually didn't look it up. I knew you would. Oh, okay. <laughs> And I got you, boo. <laughs> the editor, John Deinhart, got this exclusive story for his Chicago paper. Oh, boy. And then arranged for Irwin's surrender. So on June 27th, Irwin was flown on a chartered plane provided by the newspaper back to New York City. Once in police presence, though, Irwin yells, You can't, you can beat the Jesus out of me. You won't make me talk. Wow, okay. So basically, he spends 24 hours spilling his guts to these reporters, and that's all well and good. And as soon as he sees a uniform, he goes, no! But he did ask for his old doctor, Dr. Wardham. And they went and woke him up in the middle of the night and dragged his ass out of bed by police car back to headquarters to talk with Bobby Irwin. It is... Two hours later, around 5.20 in the morning on June 28th, that Irwin finally confesses everything to the police. Because he's already confessed to the newspaper people. Yeah. 
He told him how he spent Good Friday looking for work. He couldn't find any. He was starting to feel very depressed. And he's like, you know what? Maybe I will throw myself into the East River. And so he walks down to the river and he's on a pier. And he's thinking about killing himself. And then he's like, I have a better idea. I'm going to kill Ethel. And then they'll give me the electric chair. And so it won't be suicide. Because remember, super religious upbringing. Mm -hmm. Can't kill yourself. But if he kills somebody else, which is also a crime. So I don't really understand the, the way his mind was working here. Yeah, the logic is not logicing very well. It's not logicing very well at all. But he's like, well, I'm going to kill Ethel. And then they'll kill me. And this will work out perfect. So he starts walking back from the river. And he finds an ice pick laying in the gutter. And so he picks it up and he puts it in his pocket for later. Must have been a sign. Mm. He reached the Gideon flat around 9 p.m. and nobody was home. But Mary did eventually come back and Bobby just waited until somebody showed up. Mary comes back. She's, she's like, Bobby, Bobby, nice to see you. Nice to see you. I'm really tired. If you could uh, take the dog for a walk. That would be great. And so Bobby does. He takes the dog for a walk around the block. He comes back. Mary lets him in probably for some tea, just being friendly because you did a favor for me. I'll talk to you for a minute. And while he was there, he drew a picture of Mary as he was just spending time there and waiting. And then Frank Burns came home and Mary introduced them and Frank went to bed. And at some point, Mary must have asked him to leave. And he goes, well, no, I want to wait and see Ethel. And Mary just goes, well, Ethel is not here. She didn't tell him she didn't live there anymore, though. She just said, she is not here, and it's very late. And he's like, well, no, I'm going to stay until I see Ethel. And Mary, apparently, from what he says, screamed at him, get out of here or I'll call the Englishman. But, <laughs> which is Frank Burns. Oh, okay. They, right. they keep calling him the Englishman. I was like, is is that some sort of slang for the cops or something? I, I want it to be. <laughs> I do. But it's really not. <laughs> That's just, instead of just saying Frank, they just keep calling him the Englishman in everything. <laughs> so Bobby didn't appreciate getting yelled at. So he hit her with everything he had. And he strangled her. Quote, I had her by the throat and I never let loose of that throat for 20 minutes. Oh my God. She fell back on the floor with her legs back over her head and her dress over her head. She scratched my face like nobody's business. My face was scratched. My hands were full of blood. I smeared it on her, on her face, on her breast. I threw her in the bedroom under the bed. So you remember how I told you you could have sex in the amount of time it takes to kill somebody? 20 mm. minutes. That's enough time. It's <laughs> enough time. But that's also why they thought there might have been a sexual assault because I'm guessing she probably put her legs up to try to use her legs to push him off. Mm -hmm. And her skirts flew up over her head. And so it probably looked, the newspaper said, like she had been ravaged. Yeah, plus the, the blood smeared on her breasts and everything. Yeah, and I don't think that she was disrobed in any way, really. Like, her skirts were, were pushed up over her head, but, like, I don't think her boots were out or anything. So, after that, Bobby apparently thought about killing the dog. Oh. But the dog had gone to whimper under the bed next to Aww. the dog's owner. Oh. And Bobby actually felt bad and was like, no, you're pathetic. You can live. You're fine. So, Bobby washed the blood from his hands, and then he sat down to wait a little while longer. It's close to 3 a.m. when Ronnie finally came home, and it was dark, and she just went directly into the bathroom, where she stayed for about an hour, while Bobby sat there carving some soap. Oh, my God. Ugh. I just have such tension in my stomach. So, Ronnie finally came out. And Bobby started to choke her. And he said that she must have been drunk because she barely put up a fight. 
Now, Bobby did say he was putting enough pressure on so that she couldn't scream, but not enough that she couldn't completely breathe. I feel like Bobby was into it and he was dragging this out. Well, no, because they spoke. It was pitch black. And he had his hand on her throat and he was asking her questions and he was trying to disguise his voice. And eventually she goes, Bob, I know it's you. And that was the final nail in the coffin. Oh. Because he had said he actually wanted to let her live. But she first said that Ethel was married and also said, Bob, I know it's you. And so he didn't think he had another choice but to kill her. And he said that he felt bad because she was so beautiful. But after she was dead, she was repulsive and uh, stuff about blue death. (sighs) So I guess she turned blue and that's really a turnoff for dear old Bobby. Well, you made her that way, asshole. Yeah, but she wasn't beautiful anymore. You killed the beauty right out of her. Jesus. She was probably just trying to do whatever she could to figure out a way out of the situation. Stay calm, yeah. Yeah. So she didn't really fight him too much because she was trying to stay calm and like, I I know you. This is a bad idea. Just, Just leave. But as soon as she said his name, he was like, well, now I have to kill her. Yeah. And then he's getting up, and he's done, but then he's like, oh, the Englishman saw me. Guess I'm going to have to go kill that guy, too. We were introduced. He saw me here. That's a witness. Can't have a witness. He was actually convinced for a little while that the Englishman knew what was going on. It was just a coward and just staying in his room because the first murder happened 10 steps from his door. How did you not hear that? And according to him, Mary was screaming at him. Yeah, well, it turns out that um, he was deaf. Oh. So he was completely asleep the entire time, had no idea that any of it was happening. And Bobby went ahead, and the first ice pick, he said, he went through the temple. So he was probably at least a quick death. Yeah. And then just for good measure, 14 more times in the face. Just to make sure. Just make sure. Gotta be thorough. You gotta be thorough. But Bobby did say he felt bad for killing those three people on Easter Sunday. Because the only person he wanted to kill was Ethel. And that was the one person he didn't kill. Yeah, yeah. And afterwards he said he was really tired. Took a lot out of him. Oh, poor guy. Yeah. I feel for him. So he went home and he went, he went to sleep. And then he was woken up by the newsboys shouting about a triple murder. Yeah. So Bobby Irwin was indicted on three counts of murder in the first degree. But the prosecution expected the insanity plea. So they went ahead and you'll love this because we just talked about this in the tiny they had the court appoint a lunacy commission. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Which consisted of three people that had never seen or examined Bobby Irwin. I think that would that would be step one. Maybe even steps one, two, and three, because you might have multiple examinations. That, that that makes no sense. Did they maybe look at records from his previous asylum admissions? Anything? Nope. Just three people got appointed. They uh, never examined or met him and decided that he was perfectly sane to stand trial. It's really nice that you can have never even met someone and then be able to legally say, yeah, that person's totally sane, even though he's been in and out of asylums and tried to cut off his own penis and also murdered three people. Yeah, it's totally legit. Yeah, totally legit. The papers actually went with this and they rolled with it and they were calling him an insanity faker. (gasps) I mean, I don't buy that at all just because he, it's not like one of those cases we see where somebody is caught and all of a sudden starts exhibiting strange behaviors. Like he, yeah, Bob Irwin had strange behaviors like his whole life. Yeah, strange behavior was, it seems, his default. That was his basically, right, like deep down nature. Yeah. <laughs> was yeah. to do, do strange things and act in unexpected ways, which... Sounds a little like there was some pretty severe mental illness going on here. Yeah, I really think there are, there was. 
So Robert did actually plead guilty for three counts of second-degree murder during his trial in 1938 and got life in prison at Sing Sing. But he gets there, and the prison doctors are like, bro, (laughs) he's legit insane. Like, he's insane. And so they actually sent him to a state hospital. So December 10th, 1938, the same year of his trial, he actually got sent to the Danmore State Hospital. And in Connecticut? I'm not sure. I feel like I've looked at that for another case. I feel like it's in Connecticut, but I don't know. It could be in Connecticut. Too lazy to look it up. And he remained institutionalized for the rest of his life until he died of cancer in 1975. I feel like that was right. Yeah. There definitely was some severe mental illness. I don't have, you know, a lot of sympathy for the guy. I have more sympathy for the three people he killed and the people that they, you know, were left behind by that. But... I definitely feel like prison was not the right place for him. And even he knew that he belonged, you know, somewhere, you know, where he could get mental health care. Yeah. And not get kicked out for being poor. So there's that too. But I I was actually pretty bummed out. I could not find anything on Ethel Mm. at all. Like I tried her name. I tried her maiden name, her married name, her husband's name. I could not find a stitch. Hmm. So I have no idea what became of Ethel. And I, I would really love to know. I hope that she had a happy life. I hope so too, yeah. I know John got acquitted on all the charges. That could, they had like a trumped up gun charge. He did get to just go back to his upholstery business. Don't his, know what became of him after that. To his cubby hole in his pictures. Yeah, his creepy cubby hole, yeah. And my sources for this were Harold Schechter, Psycho USA. Thank you, Paul. And Newspapers.com, The Record, The Cushing Daily Citizen, The Kansas City Star. Thank you, Chris Garcia. Excellent. Well, I mean, you know, not excellent for the three people, but um, that was fantastically told. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for giving me a little break. I did enjoy my my birthday. Yeah. (laughs) It was a seasonal break. Yes. I uh, I do not have a recipe because you did this, and I meant to text you and be like, what year? Then... I was afraid that I would run into mentions of that case in the newspapers and be, like, spoiled for it. So I was like, well, I'll just lay off the recipe just this once. <laughs> no recipe today. And I have, that's okay. I have found a lot of interesting things in the old newspapers recently. Um, lots of interesting clippings for a future episode. So that's been fun. So, yeah. Okay. Well, Amber, thank you very much. You're welcome. Very uh, much appreciated storytelling and a break. And um, feel uh, really terrible for that family. Um, so, yes, that is uh, the show. And if you were, we'll say, educated by that, then come over to our social media to check out me doing not a whole lot. <laughs> it's a ghost town. I've, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm slightly improving as far as my you know, my chronic back and hip problems are concerned, but just today I feel like that. So I don't know what's going to happen, but uh, we will have coming up a case that is a little closer to modern day because we're going to go a little bit rogue next week. And so you'll want to check out our social media for that and we'll tell you all about it in the case next week, but there is an attached GoFundMe. And so I really uh, would like to make sure everybody at least goes and checks that out or tries to share it, even if you can't donate money. But we are going to donate some. I probably should have talked to you about this off the air. That's fine. <laughs> We're going to donate some money from the podcast fund uh, to this GoFundMe as well. So we'll, we'll get into that next week. But definitely, I will make sure at the very least to post for that case. The GoFundMe. Yeah. yeah, yeah, because that absolutely needs to get shared and spread more wild, widely, not wildly. Sure, wildly. We'll spread it wildly. Well, speaking of, if you want, there's a ton of pictures of Ronnie uh, that are available to you if, if you would like to post some of those on social media. <laughs> I can try to do that, yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah, there's social media. Um, we have merch. Still haven't taken care of that treacherous tart thing. So they're still uh, like 20% off or something. So yeah, uh, there's still that. And um, the Patreon that you've heard about already. That's all I got, really. I I don't know what else. There's all kinds of things in the show notes, links for how you can contact us or sponsor us or 
you know, help and support. So go check those out. And um, yeah, that's all I got. What you doing this week? Um, well, if you're not going to play with these, I am. We got game show buzzers. <laughs> um, I honestly feel like I'm going to play with these if they're anywhere near me. <laughs> but if you take them home, it'll be a nightmare, won't it? My life is a nightmare. <laughs> um, yes. Yes, it will. And that's okay. That's totally okay. I am going to finish building some furniture that I am about halfway through with um, doing and, and try to reclaim. Uh, my current dining room is a construction zone, oh. so I need to fix that. And that's really all I have is is just doing that this week with my horny hands. <laughs> that's a little something for our patrons. Horny hands means calloused, apparently, but not for Amber. And I am so disappointed by the Google image searches. She really thought there would be some good stuff there. I mean, I turned Safe Search on for that to figure out what it meant. You didn't need to. <laughs> I really didn't need to. It was I a waste of time. Super disappointed. Other than the gay cowboy romance, I got nothing good out of that. And that's like the only time I've ever turned on Safe Search. What a waste. Yeah. So, well, I am getting my hair done tomorrow. Ooh. Is it actually working? Is what working? Well, I tried to set my phone up to do a special flashy thing when Jackson sent a text message. Nope, don't have a text message from him. It just, it did the flashy thing for no apparent reason. It's so, probably monitoring the GPS. <laughs> I have no idea what just happened. Man is on his way home. He is getting closer to his <laughs> balls that are in your purse. <laughs> they are not. <laughs> Anyhow, yes, yeah, so I'm getting my hair done tomorrow. Um, it is currently, or it was, all the colors of the rainbow, uh, but the blue really won out, as you yeah, can see Yeah, the blue here. won. It's very mermaid blue. Yes, it is quite. So I'm thinking about going for something purple, but I need to send my stylist a picture of how it currently is before I go so that he can get some thoughts in mind and some inspiration. Because I really, I just go with, you know, yeah. we come up with ideas kind of together. It's a, it's a creative process that we work on together. But also he's going to know what colors he can mix in there without it turning like seafoam green. Exactly, because green stays in my hair forever. Yeah. So, so yeah, I'm doing that and, yeah, just doing work stuff and chilling out. I'm, yeah, just doing random shit. So... That's pretty much it. And I'm going to be enjoying some nice weather later on this week. I'm excited about that. I'm not going to get excited. It snowed yesterday. It did. Yes, it snowed and there was a pollen alert. That was fun. So um, I'll believe it when I see that shit. Yeah. Well, it was not bad today. At least it wasn't 30 degrees. That's true. That's true. Oh, I do have one other thing. So I, I years ago had made this, um, started this thing where I would make an Easter bunny out of bread. And then I would cut out the belly and fill it with dip. And it was a vegetable tray that you could also rip the bread off and dip. Sort of like my cauldron that I make at, uh, yes. at Halloween. Yeah. Except this year, I'm going balls to the wall. The kids didn't want vegetables. They wanted fruit. So I'm going to do a fruit tray with angel food bunny and a yogurt dip in the middle, if I can. But anybody that knows me and knows my baking atrocities <laughs> that I create, it's going to be delicious, but it's going to be ugly. <laughs> I want pictures. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I have four boxes of angel food cake mix. I'm not trying that shit myself. No, I hate baking. But that way I can cut lots of bunny parts. And like some of them I actually kind of plan to like dip in red food coloring. So it looks like I've murdered a bunny. And those <laughs> are the pictures that I'll be sending to you. Absolutely. Um, and then the ones that actually came out good, I'll, I'll form an Easter bunny cake surrounded by fruit. I like it. Very cute not really doing anything for Easter. I haven't done anything for Easter in like a really long time. So maybe I'll just have like pastel hair and that'll be enough. There you go. There you go. I have kids. I have to. Yeah, you pretty much have to. I have no kids. And Hemingway is already all dressed for Easter in his little neon green onesie. It's so cute. <laughs> Isn't it? Yes. Yeah, they have the little onesies that they give for to keep the cats from biting their wounds after a surgery. Oh, he's so lovely. So, yeah, that's our show, and uh, just remember, sometimes an ice pick in the gutter is just an ice pick in the gutter, and, and maybe you shouldn't use it to go murder someone. Just just a thought. Or maybe you should. Who knows? Uh, once again, <laughs> Amber's opinions are not the opinions of old-timey crimey. <laughs> <laughs> 
all right uh make sure to tune in next week because it's gonna be a really different show and i'm actually like really excited uh to see what we come up with here and to maybe raise more awareness about this case that could with some more resources aimed at it get solved so yeah uh on that note we will see you next week bye bye Spreading wildly. <laughs> yeah. There you go. So. <laughs> She's a victim, Amber. You can't. <laughs> I can. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and just. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> just as a mental note for later. And when I'm alone, I count myself. <laughs> yeah.